0: Welcome to the New Books Network.
1: Hello, everybody, and welcome to the New Books Network. I'm John Marzalek, a host for the new podcast, Voices of the Queer South. Today we'll be talking to Maurice Ardoin about his new memoir, Stone Motel, Memoirs of a Cajun Boy, published by University Press of Mississippi. I think that one of the reviewers of Stone Motel, Frank Perez, said it well when he said that, Stone Motel is much more than a memoir. It is a meditation on the intersection of place and identity. Ardoin elevates the classic coming-of-age story to an art form with authenticity and wisdom, all the while never wandering too far from his Cajun roots. Morris, welcome to the show. Thank you. It's great to be here. It's great to talk to you today. Um, I wondered if we could begin by you telling us about yourself.
0: Well, I um live in Manhattan and in Cornwallville, New York, in upstate in the mountains of New York. Um I come from a large family and um hmm. uh, I was one of nine children, in the middle. And my in my career I've always been uh working in public relations in the nonprofit sector where I've worked in um higher education and health care and um, issues like immigration, asylum. Um, but uh, in my heart, I've always been a writer, um, so I've been writing this whole time, not necessarily on the same thing, not on this book, but mm. uh, bits and pieces um, over the years. And, and now that I have actually put a book together, I've discovered the joy, and I need to continue pushing myself to actually focus and write things that are actually intentional. <laughs> so that's what I'm hoping That's to
1: do. great. Yeah, that's great. Well, how did you come to write Stone Motel?
0: I actually, um, I like that question. I actually started writing my grandmother's biography. I had interviewed her um, over the years um, many times on tape and just taking notes as an old-fashioned reporter would do. So I, I had a lot of uh, information on her. Um, and she was a fascinating person. So I thought I was going to write a book called Hortense, which was her first name. Um, so I started writing uh, bits and pieces. One of the first things I wrote is now a chapter in my memoir, and it, that's the chapter called Chilled Lanyard which means, um, Lanyak means in Cajun, it's something extra, a little surprise. Um, and uh.
1: it,
0: yeah, so that's one of the chapters. Um, it takes place at her house a lot. Of, it, it's about her really very specifically. And there are other chapters in the book that are about her that came from those conversations I had with her, as did other chapters um, come from other uh, conversations I had with other people in my life. So it really started out with that years and years ago and then re- and most recently in the last few years when this book started coming out uh coming about um i i uh, i mentioned earlier that i lived in new york city but also in upstate new york in the mountains um the mountains is where i, I would do most of my writing and that's where uh, i would i would take staycations and <laughs> in- intensely write yes i would get up at 4 4 30 in the morning and i would write and write my my goal was write uh from you know have a coffee and and start writing With a fresh brain every day on my staycation. It took me a day or two. Oh, wow. Yeah. So I did that for over the course of uh, about two or three years of all staycations. I I would take a vacation on occasion to go somewhere, but mostly my time off was spent up here in the house where I am right now. And um, so I, I, I started focusing. What, what I did not do as a writer was make an outline and a plan. I did not know this book would turn out the way it did. I just let it come out. So um, it was uh, it more organic than uh, structured uh, in the beginning. And then I started looking at what I had. And going, oh, okay, I need to make this this way. So I'm building it around what I saw and then uh, taking things out and then realizing I should add other things. So it, it was a process.
1: Uh, it, it's a beautiful book. I, I couldn't put it down as I read it. Um, oh, and you. I have so many questions to ask you, but you mentioned the chapter on Lanyap. And I, that was such a poignant story for me. I wonder if you could tell that story of when you go with your grandmother, who I believe you called um, Mamer.
0: Mama, my Ma my, my yeah um, in uh, in um, in Ville Platte uh, I, I was born and raised in a town called Eunice which is about 30 miles away from Ville Platte uh, Ville Platte and French is flat town um, and um, uh, my grandmother's town Ville Platte most people there spoke French as their primary language as did my parents so all of my elders, French for 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 them, French was the first language, and English was second. And my grandmother's language, the uh, English was was very broken. Um, what she learned, and I mentioned that in in the book, she came off uh, out from watching TV. She really didn't have any formal uh-huh. education in English at all her entire life. So that story is one day, uh, it's a flashback. It's a, a lot of my uh, chapters have flashbacks within flashbacks. Um, so she, this is a story where I, I, I was uh, coming of age. I had just gotten a, a, a new car. It was new to me. It was old, uh, a Volkswagen Beetle. Hmm. And um, I wanted to go uh, my first trip uh, to my grandmother's house. I started going before I got my own car. I had my license, so my mother would let me use her car, and I'd go visit my grandmother, go hang out with her, go take her driving around. So this this story uh, follows uh, a couple of days, um, different incidents, um, vis- visiting my grandmother. And I brought my sister Gilda with me, that first one um, in the blue uh, Volkswagen, because uh, uh, she comes running out the house when she saw me drive up with my new little car and said, I want to drive. I want to drive. I said, I just started driving <laughs> myself. I haven't had much time myself. Well, come with me to my mass. And I'll let you drive. You got a deal. So she comes with me and we both go um, and she brings her Ovation guitar. And Ovation uh, is, a, is a very high end, beautiful 12 string guitar that has a lot of richness to it. And my grandmother was a music freak. She loved music, not only Cajun music, but anything musical. Um, and she played the accordion herself. And she also played things like the violin and she would beat on drums. Mm. She was very, very musical. Um, and she loved it when any of us played. So um, my sister, Gilda, brought, brings her guitar. We, we show up. She, she kind of knew we were coming. I think we might have placed a call into her. Um, but, but my grandmother didn't go very far, even if she uh, was not home. She, we knew that she'd be in the neighborhood. So we drive up. And, she, of course, she wasn't in her house. So I walked over to the neighbors. And sure enough, she was there. And they were rattling off in French, Madame <laughs> Hadley. Yeah, so they were happy, going. Uh, uh, they were very good friends. And so, um, that story starts off with um, uh, that it, well, that that incident of driving to Ville Platte with my sister is kind of in the middle of the story. It starts off with one of my grandma's typical close, close friends is uh, um, is her sister uh, in law, my grandfather Dejon. we called him Papa. Ah. Yeah, he was Papa, and my grandma was Mama. And uh, so Papa's sister, Estelle, uh, we grew up calling her Titel. We'd say, her name is Tante Titel because that's how you'd say it in in Cajun. so, um, I start off with that chapter with Tonka tell has plastic curtains uh, because it struck me her house was really old, ramshackle. Um, it, it, you know, yeah. it, it was this the Deep South, so it wasn't it didn't get terribly cold. But if we had uh, if they had winters like we do here in the mountains in New York, it wouldn't have survived. you would have froze to death. That house was so drafty. Yeah. So it was a little old wooden shack of a house on a, on a gravel road, uh, and I was struck. I was a kid, maybe ten, by uh, before again before I went driving. Uh, uh, I, I I struck at how simple she lived and how um, unneedy she was. She would wear big billowing house dresses and she had giant corroded feet and she would smoke. She'd roll her own cigarettes. She had hair going in all directions. Mm-hmm. She was an amazing character. And I, of course, little boy right, thinking uh, I wasn't recording as I was writing it down though. I started making notes when I was about 10, maybe, maybe 12. Oh, wow. Yeah. So I've been, I've been a little reporter most of my life. Um, so <laughs> this, this chapter, Yab, it talks about, um, things that surprise you, and um, it has a few incidences in this chapter, I'm not going to give it all away, but um, a few incidences where Yulda and I or uh, my Mama finds uh, uh, things that surprise her. we all find little surprises throughout the story, and so um, it's always a good thing when you find a surprise, sometimes it's a surprise that, that saddens you, when you realize what the backstory of that particular surprise, and that's um, that happens in the story, and sometimes you go, um, you you keep going in a daily. You're in a when, a, when you're in a person's daily life, um, they're just perfectly fine and normal. But as an observer, sometimes I was struck by how unusual it was that that a person like Tante Tell and my grandmother Hortense lived so simply, like I said, without needs. Um, and I, I, I when I wrote that story, that was. Uh, that was the very first story, I think I mentioned earlier, mm. that, that, that ended up in the book. I wrote that when I still lived in New Orleans, uh, and it changed. When I got to writing the book and I realized I want to use that particular story, I rewrote it uh, because I didn't write the same way anymore. So um, I, I, uh, But the story stayed the same as far as the gist of it, and that is that life is full of little surprises that if we look for them or, um, or, or you, don't, you don't look for surprises, you let them happen. You can appreciate them. Um, they teach you all kinds of things.
1: And you just do a wonderful job in the book of telling us a story through the eyes of a child or whatever age you were at the time. Um, it, it struck me how, how you did that so well. Yeah. I wondered if you could talk a little bit more about your relationship with your mom, Um because the stories about her and you were just beautiful.
0: Thank you. Uh, my, my grandmother um, uh, in the book is my savior. In fact, I almost dedicate the book to her. In my soul, I do. But on paper, I dedicated the book to the dog who was with me most of the time while I was writing the book. He's no longer with us. His name was Moby. Um, and I would uh, write all day, like I said, from four till sometimes, mm-hmm. uh, definitely till noon. That was my goal. But sometimes till uh, nine at night, I wouldn't quit. Um, and so Moby would be that my ears, I would read back as I re- wrote. Um, as a writer, you know, John, that once you read something aloud, you, you hear things, you see things differently. And go, oh, wait, wait mm-hmm. that doesn't that doesn't sound right. Let me rewrite that paragraph. So um, Moby was my ears for that. Anyway, so I dedicated the book to him. But my grandmother really is the person this, this book is about. And it really could, you could see where the story of her life could come out of uh, this book. In fact, I'm, I'm thinking of, of actually following up this book with a, a biography. But it would be kind of fictionalized because I didn't get to finish interviewing her. Um, there were a lot, uh. lot, of, lot of things I would like to have finished asking her. And um, she died at 96. And I had moved away um, to New Orleans. And so I wasn't as close. I couldn't finish that process. Um, and I thought, oh, I'll go back one day and do it. And of course, you never do that. So the lesson is, do do what you have while people are in your life. Um, make sure you you can uh, fully avail yourself of what they have to bring to your life. So I wish I had done more with my grandmother, and I think I would have written a the biography and uh, would have been, I think, quite rich because she had she was so much more interesting than anything fiction. So um, my I, my relationship with her was started at a very young age when I was like six or seven. I was at my when, when my papa was still alive. He treated he treated me um, as a traitor. Traitor is a faith healer in Louisiana, and traitors are not just unique to Louisiana. They they're all over the Deep South, and um, but Louisiana has a lot uh, had a lot of them when I was little. Because of the uh, culture there, the, uh, combined, the combination of the Creole culture and the Cajun culture, the Creoles in particular brought um, faith healing from the islands, the uh, islands uh. below the United States. Yeah, that's what the, the Creoles migrated into Louisiana from the, from the south up and then the cajuns m- migrated into louisiana from the north down we came from canada huh. yeah so the creoles and cajuns uh, blended and uh, the, what was what was common to those two groups very different uh, uh, types of people but what was common was the french language so that was a natural way to start um, building. When uh, I mean, people say, oh, Louisiana, it's, it's it's Cajun with the Creole accent or Creole with the Cajun flavor. Like that doesn't kind of make literal sense because there are two very distinct cultures. But when you talk about Louisiana, you say Louisiana does involve Creoles and Cajuns and Americans. There's a lot of people who settled in Louisiana who were um, settlers from other parts. The people with names like Smith and Jones are in Louisiana like they are in every hour. So um, So so. My relationship with with my grandma started very, very young, and I realized early on that she was kind of my safe place. I felt that um, r- very early on, and her husband was that too. Th- I started the story about him being a faith healer. I was I was yeah. crippled over in pain. I had a lot of stress. Um, I was I was feeling as very from a young age. I was uh, when I was six or seven when the first that first incident happens with my grandfather. Uh, the um, I wasn't yet the middle child. I was one of the youngest child children because uh, my other mm. siblings weren't born yet. So. But I was—I uh, would go and I would get to my grandmother, my grandparents' house, and have such a, a feeling of welcome, of, of these arms, you know, uh, encircling me and hope, holding me that I did not get in my family. Because even as the um, sixth-born child um, or the fifth-born child, um, I had a lot of competition for attention at home. But not when I was mm-hmm. at my grandparents' house. At my grandparents' house, I was the star. I would go and there—it's all about me. So I kind of love that. <laughs> so it started early on, and she, my grandmother. I'll, I'll try to cut this short. My grandmother stayed with me as my protector and my savior throughout this story. Um, she helped me get through some hardships that we'll uh, maybe talk about later. Or uh, I, yeah. I, uh, there, there was things going on that were just beginning as I was a child that I realized that I wasn't completely. I didn't, I didn't know how to even uh, enunciate what was going on with me, but I was beginning to feel that um, I was not necessarily in a safe place. Uh, and, and my grandmother took, took me, and when my parents, my father was very, very violent. My mother was very, very overwhelmed. She had, at that point, six mm-hmm. kids, and she only had nine, uh, and she had her own business. They were both entrepreneurs, so running my, the, the par- my parents' motel and her beauty shop took everything out of both of them, and, and he, on, my father, on top of all that, had um, PSTD, which wasn't even named at the time as a condition. Uh, people came back from World War II. And just uh, had to be, uh, you know, a solid, stoic, keep it to yourself kind of thing. That's how they dealt with that kind of thing back then. So, um, and he he had issues. Uh, so I was beginning to feel the the uh, effects of his PTSD, PTSD as a child. And so that's where the story goes, um, follow through. Uh, but anyway, so that's why she was so important to me. She she latched onto me. I latched onto her, and she kept me through my adulthood um, until she died. We were very tight.
1: Yeah, and that really comes through in the book. And I, I wondered if, if you thought that your, your connection with your grandmother, part of it was because of um, – of course, when you were a kid, you didn't realize this – but part of it was because that you were gay.
0: Yeah, I, she, she recognized, um, I would go to her house and I'd be myself. It was the first time I could be myself. And I would put on her, I, I mentioned this in the book, old lady face powder all over myself. Uh, and, <laughs> and she and I would dance because, you know, Louisiana is the land of Mardi Gras and um, people, um, that, all that you de to be, that music is an indigenous kind of music, again, um, derived from the Cajuns and the Creoles. Um, And um, that kind of everyday joy uh, uh, celebrated with food and music. and, 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 And so I got to her house, and that was all about that. She had an old phonograph. She had those old 78 records playing. And all that 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 we call it chank-a-chank music, because if you listen to it, if you're kind of just kind of not really paying attention in the background, <laughs> Cajun music sounds chank a chank a chank It has that. So we call it chank a um, And so uh, that's what was going on. And so she put me in a world um, not only where I was a star, but um, where we could sing and dance and not be self-conscious about anything.
1: Ah, uh, yes. And the, free, the freedom you felt really shines through in those yeah. stories. um. You, you kind of alluded to this, but at different places in the book, you share some of the abuse that or a lot of abuse that you faced from your father. And I wondered what that was like for you to write about this as an adult because it was obviously um, – it was painful just to read that.
0: Thank you. Um, um, I, I, uh, I'll I give the listeners a little bit of primer on, on the, the abuse. My father um, – and it doesn't give anything away. It is in the blurbs if you read the book jacket. Um, my father was attacking me early on as a very young uh, – preteen. Uh, he didn't attack me when I was six, but he started, he was, uh, the, you could feel his, I, I could feel his, his hostility, the energy was was uh, apparent, mm. even as that child that young, but he didn't start actually hitting me until I was about 11, 10 or 11. Uh, and um, he did not like that I was sassy. That was his uh, veiled word for a little gay boy. Um, mm. He, he, he uh, would be very forceful about, you know, you have to be a man, and here I am 11. Um, and, um, so he already started trying to recondition me, um, to be like him. And my, uh, my older brother, Andy, both of them loved to go hunting and fishing and doing all that stuff. And I did not know how to be a boy, um, which was hard for me because I really felt, um, lost. And I remember that uh, identifying that issue, not, not knowing how to be a boy. Uh, I didn't know mm-hmm. I wasn't a girl, but I did not know how it wasn't. as I, I, That's whatever that's what I was assigned, basically. And I was like, OK, I never um, I could never figure it out. So I was like, I don't know how to deal with this man who is not really uh, accepting me. Um, and so he violently attacked me one day in one of the chapters. I keep it to a minimum in the book because I don't want to make mm-hmm. the readers uh, flee. <laughs> But um, he tagged me really violently once um, a- after we had lost the uh, motel. The motel burned in a fire on Christmas, a uh, week before Christmas, um, and um, we, we lost everything. And the, the, the struggle, uh, my parents were typical parents. They kept it from us as much as possible about how dire the financial situation was, because that was our bread and butter. And my mother had a beauty shop, thank God, because that's what kept us fed while the motel was being rebuilt. Um, Half of the hotel stayed up, but the half of it burnt down cut to the ground, and the half that stayed up was really um, smoke-damaged uh, for uh, uh, weeks and weeks and weeks before we could just get a few of the rooms rentable, because the customers kept coming. We had a loyal following, so slowly we built back up the business, and within a year, um, new rooms were built uh, to replace the ones that had burned. So we got back on our feet, but uh, during that process, my father was very, very, very stressed on top of His own background, which I talk about in the book, um, having been as a child himself. When he was about 14, um, his father um, had remarried. Um, His mother, his biological mother, had died in childbirth. Um, He was one of 14 children, Um, Mm -hmm. and so at 14 he was um, left to, and and two of his brothers were left to to live on the neighbors in the neighbor's barn um, because the former next next to my uh, my grandfather's farm. Went over to him and said, You have a lot of children. Um, I need help on my farm. If they come and work with me, they can live with me and I'll feed them and make sure they get to school. And so my father and two of his brothers went to live on a, a barn in a barn and worked every day from sun up to. The time to go to school, and then right after school, so they did that for a couple of years before they entered the war. So he was a very young boy, basically at fourteen, learning how the, the how hard life was. It was just during uh, the depression and years after, and then he goes into the war, and then he sees he's eighteen, he sees all this bloodshed, and um, you know there's a lot of trauma in his young life, mm. and then mm-hmm. he comes back to Louisiana and gets married and starts having kids. So that's not a whole lot of long a, a long time before um, he's he's trying to function as a as a as a stable adult, and some of these things start seeping through, um, to, and to his shell. He had a very he had a very um tough tough man, very out, uh, tough outer shell. But they started seeping through. So that kind of was also coloring, um, how he was seeing me. He saw this soft little boy. He used that word soft a lot uh, with mm-hmm. me. Um, he never called me um temper contemporary names like faggot or queer, he would call me, uh, he would say, um, soft, he would say, you need to um, you need to uh, be more like a man, you need to, um, you know, uh, there's a chapter called Menfolk in the book about how he used that term. He said, this one needs to join, uh, grow up and join the menfolk, and it was very, it was a dagger for me. I, I knew what that meant. I knew what he was trying to say. It still chokes me up. Um, so um, the, all of that was going on in him, and I, at that time, did not know how much of his the trauma he had experienced. So I would just assume he was just me. And um, so I, 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 I got through that period um, with the help of my grandmother. Um, she saw it happening. My mother tried to be as, as good of a mother as she could be, but she had a business to run. We had that motel that we had to rebuild and a lot going on. And I was one of nine. Uh, ultimately she had um, uh, three, four babies after me. Uh, so she had a lot going on. So my grandmother, thank God for her. So. um to, to answer your question, when I'm writing about that, mm-hmm. um, it wasn't as um, as easy. Believe me, it was. It, it, I didn't ex- I didn't expect to write about it at all. When I was writing the book, setting out to writing, I really, I thought I was going to focus on my grandmother, but you can't tell my grandmother's mm. story. Uh, without talking about her grandchildren and i'm one of those and i would have come up (laughs) so as i'm writing it i realized this is my story i have to tell that piece of it and it's something i had um put back in my mind and gotten through my grandmother's advice to me all those years up until she died was and try to imagine yourself on the other side of a problem um yes try to put yourself envision what's coming next um the good thing that's on the other side of this i mean when you go through uh, some some dark spots in your life my grandfather, the traitor, that was kind of like how tra- traitorism, uh, faith healing works. You have to, There's prayers, but you have to, um, he has to calm you down and help you relax as a patient. And then he wants you to try to envision, um, it's, again, it's, it's through faith and through believing and spirituality and uh, becoming something that is not um, your everyday self, getting away from your everyday self and lifting away from that. And trying to put yourself on the other side, and it works to a certain degree. It worked for me. Um, it worked for my siblings and my mother. I saw him. Mm-hmm. I was there when he treated other siblings, and I knew that worked. So my grandmother took that to heart and used it with me when my father, my grandfather, was long gone. So um, I, I, writing about that piece of it was was uh, was wonderful. Um, uh, telling that story about how how that how I experienced that. But then you have to deal, you have to deal with the, as a writer, you have to deal with why are you going through this? Why are you having to envision yourself going mm-hmm. on this side? So those parts were hard to write. And I, I wouldn't, um, I wouldn't write another memoir that way. Again, I would, I would um, uh, just, in, in any memoir, I, I think that because you have to dig so deep and you have to scratch things that have long healed and you think, or uh, you reopen those wounds and I think, oh oh, I don't know if I really want to do this. Um, So there are times when I just write something else, just jump on another another part of the story. So, because I do want the listeners to understand my story is full of fun too. There's good stuff in there. (laughs) So, uh, yeah, so I want to make sure that, because the, the emphasis for writing this book, for me, a lot of it was, um, I wanted to leave something behind to the, uh, my nieces and nephews, uh, grandchildren of them. You know, a lot of the generations to come about what it was like to be living in those times. That also uh, my grandparents. I wanted them to know them, and my parents. I wanted them to know what it was like, um, and the smells and sounds and tastes of Louisiana at the time. Because after the nineteen seventies, and nineteen eighties started happening, and everything started changing in that culture. So. My book, really, I wanted to, it to be a record of the, those things that I experienced, and it, you know, it turned into a, a memoir. Um, not again, not intentionally. It just happened. Well, and you talk about this, as
1: you say, this unique culture, this unique area of the country that hasn't been talked about a lot. I don't, I don't know. Can can you talk a little bit more? You know, give the listener a description of what that was like living there and what that culture was like.
0: Yeah. Uh... I'll give you an example of how distinct it was to me. Um, I, after I left it, I didn't realize how pronounced it was as a cultural, mm-hmm. cultural influences. Um, it, I mentioned the food, the food, the, the music, uh, the fact that so many families have at least one or two musicians within the family, not professional, but everybody has an instrument. Um, but, um, and there are a lot of professional musicians coming out of Louisiana. Um, that music has been recorded and played all over the world and I tra- mm-hmm. a lot of traveling uh, the Cajun and Zydeco music um, but so it, hits, it and it, Louisiana is also the birthplace of, of jazz as you know so um, those that kind of joie de vivre um, uh, the epicurean uh, approach to life it's almost hedonistic you love life you enjoy it while you have it and so life mm-hmm. should be beautiful life should be full of smells that are wonderful and sounds and tastes and so um, you should make as much beauty in the world as possible and that includes how you eat what you um, how you celebrate um, how you worship all those things were very animated to me uh, but really I didn't realize how intense it was until I left and I go out of Louisiana mm-hmm. and I'm living I lived in New Orleans after I left Cajun land I live in New Orleans New orange is a very different part of the state but then i moved to new york and i went wait a minute where's the spice <laughs> where the music on every corner of new Orleans new orleans is a wonderful city for music and you go um, any neighborhood has a juke joint somewhere or some place where live music is happening virtually every single neighborhood in that city and a lot of cities have music scenes but that's they're isolated to a section of downtown somewhere like if you go to austin there's a great uh, austin, a music a section of austin on 6th street where everything is happening and it kind of then peter's out um, but in New Orleans, it's everywhere, um, and I know. I think you lived in New Orleans, right, John? I did. I did. Yeah. So yeah, you in the section. Yeah, you got to experience that. It's very much part of the everyday culture. Very uh, European in many ways, and that yeah, life true. Closed down intentionally, and um, so um, that's what I grew up with. And I, 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 someone was talking to me um, a few weeks ago about that culture and. Um, being a gay boy in that culture and having that kind of um, the oppression of the time, the 1970s, uh, we're going through a, a resurgence of some of that hostility now um, with our rights and some of the things we're seeing now in, in the world are ugly and thinking, whoa, this is, this, these times aren't as evolved as I would hope they'd be by now. But anyway, back in the 70s, all that misogyny, all that bigotry, all that was more pronounced than it ever than it is um, now, by far. But still, he, the question was, how did I uh, fit into that kind of world? Well, that was kind of uh, that was the atmosphere. I said, well, Louisiana, go back to that thing. Louisiana is the home of Mardi Gras. There was always something to look forward to, um, and there was always a party. There was always there were costumes. We knew drag before drag was you know, a thing. It wasn't just for <laughs> gay men. We, you'd, get, you'd get in your Mardi Gras, Mardi Gras drag, and you were partying um, as a child. So That's part of the flavor of our lifestyle, um, so, and it still is. Um, um, and, and, and again, you mentioned this earlier, that it's a snapshot of that time period of the 70s because, again, by the 1980s, think of what was happening in the 1980s. Um, cable television started becoming ah. widely available. That changed what we were exposed to. Fast food became widely available. It changed what we ate. Um, Microwave oven kind of came into households. Microwaves didn't come into households in full force until about early 80s. Um, They were invented well before that, I think in the 50s, I don't know. But they became affordable, accessible to the masses in the early 80s. So everything was changing all at once. Those things that really we take for granted. So back in those days, people look at uh, the state of Louisiana today. It's one of the most obese per capita states there is it's not the fattest state in the union but it's one of the top um and yep, and, and yep. people go it's all that rich food well no it's not that rich food has always been part of louisiana but we didn't eat it every single day we didn't have access to it you would make a big old right. alaya, you wouldn't eat that every day you would you would kill yourself so now because <laughs> of exposure because of instant access because of so many things our culture has changed um since then Um, We have, uh, that that culture in many places, uh, when I moved to New York, New York wasn't, New York City, you you didn't see a lot of that kind of problem. A lot of, of, it wasn't that, morbid obesity in in itself, I use that as one of the points, because there are many other points um, about changing the culture with television uh, and the the advent of uh, technology that made everything easier for us. So when I moved to New York in 1992, it was odd to see anybody who was really oversized or larger than the average person, Mm -hmm. The average person now the size that we have all become bigger our average is now bigger than it was in 1992
1: as America- well, Morris, i remember in your book if you look at some of the this is great pictures you include in the book and you show pictures of your family and your um, grandparents and everyone's skinny in those pictures
0: yeah because with all that excess with all that epicurean i'm talking about all that joie de vivre we had we weren't doing it in excess so it was a great culture but um we did have we did in uh, uh organically modulate we weren't it weren't it wasn't it wasn't just a bacchanal it was it was something we did like when you make a big gumbo gumbo is not terribly fattening by the way it's other things that are fattening are etouffee Étouffée is full of butter it's a wonderful dish um jambalaya is wonderful but it's full of rice it's all rice um uh, things like that you have some some great very rich foods in louisiana and the desserts oh my goodness um, but we never ate them. And we never overindulged. It wasn't, it wasn't normal to do that. <laughs> now it's perfectly normal.
1: I should, I should add here for the listener also that, um, that you're a food lover and that you have been writing a blog for years on food and um,
0: recipes. Yes, thank you. My blog is called Parenthetically Speaking, um, and I write about uh, living in New York City and, and, and being a Louisiana person. So it, mm-hmm. it naturally covers a lot of food. Um, I've written've written lately about my book of course but um, really is a lot of recipes and I've compiled my recipes into a, I'm compiling I've actually have a first stage of a cookbook done and um, uh, so uh, and that cookbook f- focuses on the food that's mentioned in my memoir I can't
1: so, wait yeah, I can't wait to see it I'm looking forward to that
0: yeah so, um, yeah so I, I have those recipes uh, many of them uh, uh, in this new cookbook
1: I wanted to um, go back to um, you know you're talking about growing up being a gay boy, um, in, in this, in this culture. And there's a really poignant scene when you talk about being 15 years old and your first job at at the national grocery store. And I wondered if I could read a sentence from the book that you, that you said that I thought really, um, captured this turning point in your life, I thought. Do it. Okay. Um, you're talking about, you know, being at this grocery store and, um, this interaction with this, um, the meat man at the grocery store and, um, and you say, I felt a sense of dread that my life was not going to be as easy as it was for all those other people in the world who since time memorial have had this aspect of their lives neatly la- laid out before them. Yeah, I wonder if you could talk about that and, and what, what, what was happening for you as a 15 year old there?
0: Well, um, I, I, I don't know um, when you, um, as a gay man, started realizing um, this very point, which is we're mm-hmm. not like everybody else, and it's not going to be as easy for us. Um, at first, it's there's a lot of uh, curiosity and confusion, but then you start forming as um, 15, you start beginning to go, wait a minute, I, I'm, I, you don't automatically go out and get married. Uh, marriage wasn't in our um, emotional vocabulary. It wasn't until we got gay marriage just a few years ago. Uh, so we, as gay people, did not even have that to talk about. People talked about it in jokes, um, and and and, and, and uh, the whole thing was uh, just so far fetched for us. Not that we didn't want it, but it wasn't. We weren't entitled to it. So we worked around it. And so I remember being 15 and go, wait a minute, I'm not going to have all that. I'm not going to have babies necessarily. I'm not going to have a house with a picket fence in the in the suburbs. We're not welcome there. So. I remember how that struck me as being, oh, wait, this is not just my home life I have to get through. Now I have to get on the outside of all this, and here it comes. Um, Although that chapter, um, The Meat Man, um, uh, was really, to me, the, there's a lot of uh, titillation, uh, if yeah. discovery yeah. of that, wait, this can be fun. It's not scary. Let, let's let it happen. You know, it's not all, all gloom, doom. It's really something that's um, there's a lot of joy in being. I'm, I'm very uh, proud and happy to be gay. And, you know, gay pride is that's not a that's not a misnomer for a lot of us. Uh, a lot of us were have, have been uh, forced to live in the closet over the decades and decades or mm-hmm. e- uh, eons of our existence. But um, I actually enjoy it. I actually enjoy being a gay person. I think we I have I agree. I think we have yeah. a lot of fun, and I think there's a lot. I, I, not that we're recruiting because that's a good. That's a good straight talking point. <laughs> oh, we're, they're recruiting. We don't recruit. We don't. We know uh... we have plenty without having to recruit. Um, so, <laughs> but it, there's a lot of joy in this life, and it's not a lifestyle. It's a life. It's not a style. It's, it's just the way who we are. It's our. It's our, It's in our DNA, literally. I think. So. Um, so yeah, that that. Realizing that very point was hard for me, um, but then I'm glad I, I I accepted it. It's like, okay, then now what? I have to figure it out. I have to, mm-hmm. I have, to I have to find a way around it. like my grandmother, my mom my always said there's gonna be a way around it. But, one of
1: the one of the things that um, as I, as you're talking, I'm thinking about how you make this really great point towards the end of the book where you talk about you realize that happiness is something that you can find between the time, I think you said between the times that are heartbreaking or that are just difficult. Yeah. And it spoke to the culture and it spoke to what you're just saying about, you know, growing up as someone who's gay. It was just a really profound statement, I thought.
0: Thank you. Um, I, I yeah, I, I I want to leave the reader with that. Um, and people who haven't read the book, I want, uh, there were some people who, who, who don't want to read about that kind of hardship for a child. It's it's an unpleasant thing to read. Um, again, I, I think I kept it mercifully short when I described mm-hmm. the uh, child abuse. Um, but uh, I really want to get across those wonderful, that joie de vivre. It really is, uh, life is full of great moments that sometimes just buzz on by and you just think, wait a minute, that was a great day. I had, you know, we, it's the simplest things. We, I, I found the other day a little bat that had fallen out of the tree um i think it came from a tree it was right near a tree and the dog was chasing it was trying to get it it was slapping around and i got it away from the dog and put it in the bushes near the tree so that hopefully mother nature would get it back where it belonged or whatever it would be humanely um <laughs> disappear i didn't <laughs> want the dog to get it um but it was a sweet little memory i'm like that little bat i never came that close to a bat i was touching it to try to get it to get away from the dog um, and um, I'm never going to forget that. Um, life is full of those little moments. It's not. This was not a you know big birthday cake celebration. This was not seeing Barbra Streisand sing. This was a little bat in the yard. Um, and those little moments that's what our lives are mostly about. Um, and I think we should, my point is that I want people to take those moments in when they happen. Um, when people say making memories, I don't like that. that it's, it sounds like you're forcing the memories to happen. I think the best mm. memories are not forced. <laughs> so um, uh, so that, that's it. I wanted to leave, and I, I illustrate that particular point with the story about my, my papa uh, Dejon, um and, and me when I was five and I couldn't, I, I, we at the circus and I couldn't get in because I was too short. I wasn't high enough to, to go through. So he stayed out of the circus with me, and we walked around the big circus tent while the rest of our family went inside, and we had the best time. I, I, that was such a pro, uh, profound, um, in, in, embedded memory in me. I never forgot that. Obviously, I wrote about it, but um, uh, that's the kind of thing. the little things that are not what you're expecting, that lanyap in mind.
1: I love, that. I love that section of the book, too. You, you have a way of... Um painting pictures with, with your writing. And it just, I could just imagine you and your grandfather outside the circus. It was just, it was great. Um, I wondered if you could talk about the Stone Motel. It's the title of your book. And it, it, it's, it's like going back in, it's going back in history when you read about this motel that's in this little town.
0: Um, yeah. Uh, well, when we got there uh, in the very beginning of the book, I talk about how we drove up one, one Saturday in May and uh, my father had just bought he was running an Esso station. Esso is the precursor to Exxon. Um, Esso stands for Standard Oil, but they spelled it out as E-S-S-O. Ah. Yeah, so he worked for Standard Oil after the war, and then he opened, uh, opened himself up a little Esso station in Eunice, our hometown. And he was that's all he was ever thought he was going to ever be, and he thought, I want something more. Um, and then he learned about this little motel three miles outside of town that was for sale. Um, and it was a family um, of daughters, uh, three daughters, and uh, this old couple who had... They were getting up in age, and they wanted to sell. Um, and they had been there since before, um, since the like 1920s. On that property, it had been a number of uh, different businesses: a lumber yard, a house moving company, a grocery store, and then they had rental houses. Um, there weren't quite; it wasn't a motel yet. But um, the man's, the owner's father said, "Hey, out there in California, they're making these these roadside hotels. They're calling yeah. them hotels. This is the beginning of the motel." concept was back in those days so my parents bought one of those original motels before it became they became ubiquitous um, and and it was uh so it was built uh, in the early 19 late 1940s early 1950s after the depression there was a lot of skittishness about um doing business um, being an entrepreneur after the depression a lot of people had no, uh-huh. had nothing to go on so they started business businesses and so he built his um the motel and it ran it for a few years, um, but we actually ran it as a family longer than he did. Um, we had it for 30 years. They only had it for, I think, maybe uh, 20 years. Uh, yeah, less than, fewer than 20 years. Um, so as far as a motel, they had the land and, like I said, other businesses there. So we, we buy into this, all this history, and it's a little roadside motel already set up. But it had aged, and we needed to do a lot of work. And what made it successful for us as a family, made it doable, was that we could all do parts of the work um, laundry, yeah. cutting the grass. There was lots of grass to cut doing, uh, cleaning the rooms, renting the rooms. I got to learn, or we all got to learn our customers. We had regular customers. Uh, and it was, a, no, it was a kind of, a, for many places, It was a no tell motel, but for all the clients, it was vacationers, vacationers would come. And then there were offshore oil, um, rig, oil rig people who would bring their family. Ah. So we had three different types of customers. So the the motel motel customers who would come and they would have their rendezvous and they would be the regular ones. Those were our bread and butter, that one, uh, that group. Um, but then we'd have these these uh, families that would stay in our kitchenettes because the father would go offshore and work for two or three weeks out shore and the family would stay in the motel. And um, we would, uh, as kids, we befriended all the kids in those families. So we had all these uh, coming and going children in our lives um, in the motel. So the motel was named Stone Motel because the motel was... was uh, it's covered with that stone facade siding that uh, came out of Baltimore in that time. It, if you go to the city of Baltimore, you see a lot of this motel. It's, it was made. Huh. Yeah. This motel type stone is, it was, it was made um, by a company called Formstone, And they would come in and put that up on the side of the building. They would uh, install it. Basically. It wasn't like something you'd staple on. It was actually um, wet. And it, it involved uh, putting up a and, and and, and installing it and painting these blocks. And it was all, it all looked very surreal as it was happening, apparently, because I, I got a description of the process from one of the daughters. And um, and then it got painted and looked like th- these stones were really kind of real in, in a fake way. <laughs> you know.
1: <laughs> the so, picture is great in the book of the, of the vintage postcard you have of the motel itself.
0: Yeah. Well, thank you. That postcard came from the night of the fire. There's a chapter in, the, in, oh, the, in the, book yeah. the book about the fire. Um, a lot of our, our uh, rooms, were, like I said, were lost. Um, there was a box of uh, postcards um, that was destroyed and water damaged and smoked up. And that postcard that's on the cover um, started out in that box. Um, I have a perfect one and I have one that's smoke damaged. And that's the one that smoke damaged is the one that was used on the cover. My, my partner, Aubyn, designed the cover. Um, and, uh-huh. uh, yeah, and he took it and he, he took that photo and made it even darker and more ominous looking. Uh, because the Stone Motel as a title wasn't really originally the title um a uh, university press of mississippi asked me to change it about a month before we went to press and i was like what um the original <laughs> title, the original title was called the canasta summers because in those summers most of the uh, book, part one yeah part one of the book yeah most of the book takes place in the summer um and so when i had to change the title i went whoa i don't have any stories that happened in the fall i went to have a couple but really most of it's summertime uh, uh, incidents and uh, so, had I written the book at Stone Motel from the get-go, I would have put more in round year-round type of story Because I had a lot of stories I could have told about being in school. Because in school I was a different kid. Uh, and, uh, uh, different.
1: Well, you know, you really do weave in the stories of some of these characters. I guess that's the way I kind of viewed them. Who came and stayed in the motel, and um, your experiences living in the house, you know, the family house that's right there next to the motel.
0: Yeah. Uh, well, it was a palace to us. We were, we were. Um, we, my, again, my father was running an Esso station. My mother had a beauty shop. Um, we were small town people, um, and uh, we had a big, flat, ranch-style wooden house in the middle of the town. And our family was just growing too big for, to accommodate. Uh, that house was too small for, to accommodate us. So my dad was looking at this motel purchase as a pragmatic thing. We need a bigger space. We both, we do. We need a business. Um, and I got to You know, that's all I know. So he bought this motel, and we were all going to be part of it and succeed. Um, And he did succeed largely uh, over the course of the 30 years that we were there. It ended kind of sad because in the end, um, we couldn't sell the motel. He couldn't sell the motel because the economy was bad at the time. And so the value of the motel for us was that it gave us a very rich life over the course of the um, 30 years that we had it. And rich being rich in experiences, we never had a whole lot of money. Um, uh, But uh, the motel did provide for us, and including my mom, my mom's beauty shop, like I said, she she got us through the fire period. Um, And so that motel was very prominent. It was like in in my, in the prologue, I mentioned that it's kind of like another character, another family member was the motel itself. So it was a good title. It's a good title for the book. But again, it's a Canasta Summers. The reason it was named Canasta Summers and. is that I had a whole lot more about Canasta. It's in the book now, but uh, that, the, that four of my, three of my siblings and me, Gilda and Glenda and my brother Dickie and I, the four of us played Canasta in the middle of all our chores. Um, at, in the middle of those summers, we would have run out and clean rooms, we would cut the grass, we would do the laundry, <laughs> we'd rent the rooms, and then we'd stay around the dining room table playing Canasta. And Canasta is a game you can get up from and leave and just don't touch the cards and come back and play it for three days the same round. Um, and we did, yeah, that, yeah. we did that a lot, and so they, that's why it was originally called the Canasta Summers. And when my siblings and I talk about those years, we talk about them as our Canasta Summers. So that that title m- makes emotional sense to me. Um, and the, the Stone Motel is, uh, it, like I said, it's also a good title. It's a title my partner came up with. One um, of we brainstormed. I gave him about five different combinations of. Uh, book titles that they could have played with, and they they landed on that one and said, "Go for it! Let's go! Let's get this thing depressed." So <laughs> there we are.
1: I could really relate to the canasta um, around the table because I grew up playing canasta with my grandmother and my brothers and friends too, and um I loved when you described some of the conversations that that you and your sisters and brother would have as kids. It was so interesting as you're sitting there playing cards.
0: Yeah, it was a great um, space for us. Uh, my my father was violent. He was not only violent to me; he was violent to some of my other siblings. Not all. All of us, but some of them. So it was kind of a, a bubble for us. Like my grandparents' house was a bubble for me. Um, Canasta was a bubble for us. We would be playing, and my, my father recognized where well, when they're playing, they're not out in the streets um, on the highway, <laughs> you know, swimming in some uh, uh, weird ditch somewhere, <laughs> playing, as kids would do. So Canasta kept us all together and accountable, and uh, we would be talking, and we would be civilized, and so they let us play. We would not. They would not touch our Canasta games. Um, They were not, you know, so we were really, that was our bubble.
1: It came across that way. That's, that's interesting. Yeah. Yeah. In the last, in the last part of your book, part two is titled The Elders Depart. And there's a really powerful scene um, where you and your mom have an outing to the purple peacock. And I think some of your coming out story kind of seems to come into that section. I, I wondered if you could talk about that.
0: Yeah, um, my mother, I used to drive home from uh, either LSU, I went to LSU for undergraduate school, and then a few years later, I went to grad school at what is now the University of Louisiana. That is, uh, at the time I went, it was called uh, USL, University of Southwestern. Oh, yeah. Yeah, Yeah, so um, I went to grad school there, and when I would drive home uh, on the weekends, uh, I would take my laundry, I'd go into the big industrial strength motel laundry room and do my laundry, get it done, then I'd dart out of the house, and go visit my friends um, who still lived in eunice and so one of my mother kept joking with me oh take me take me because she'd be she'd be left running the um front office on on the weekend night and my dad would take early naps so that he could stay up later um and mm. so she'd take me take me so one of these days uh i said one of these days i will and i thought i went i went out one night when she had said that again and i thought why don't i take her so next time when i got home that that the next day i told her um yeah, next time let's plan to go. Um, I'm, I'm going to take you next time. So we went out to the Purple Peacock. The Purple Peacock is an institution in Eunice. It used to have this mm. beautiful neon peacock um, on as its sign. It was a gorgeous, gorgeous, classic. It's a dance hall. That's what they called it back then. Big dance hall ah. and built in the days with live music. Um, and they have real. They had live acts like uh, uh, all kinds of people who who started small in the South and went and became national names. Um, Anyway, so he uh, – I mean uh, uh, she and I went to the Purple Peacock. I said, okay, then come with me. We'll go have a drink at the – she suggested, let's go to the Peacock. I haven't been there in 20 years. I said, oh, okay. Mm. I thought I was just going to take it with one of my friends. We, what I would do when I go visit friends, we'd invariably play, guess what, Canasta or some other card game. <laughs> so we would, I would go out and we'd have, we would make cocktails. We'd have snacks and we'd play for two or three hours and then I'd go home. Uh, uh, back to the motel and then, you know, stay there at the motel. The next day, it's Sunday, we'd have a barbecue. Then I'd go back to grad school or undergrad school and, you know, drive, whatever um, to, to either Baton Rouge or Talafia. Um, so that was my routine when I came in. I didn't come in every weekend. But anyway, so that night we went to the Peacock and she and I are talking and she's really revealing to me. Again, my reporter's hat is on. So I'm asking her questions. I didn't want to talk about me and my life. I want to talk about her. So I, I yeah. was leading the questions, and I I didn't have a recorder with me, and she knew that I took notes. Um, so she, but she was very open, and she said um, her recurring line was, "I can't wait until we sell this place, that place, one day." She was so tired of the motel; it was wearing her out. It was around the clock; it is a round the clock business, um, and so it was wearing her out. Um, and so I, I'd asked her, uh, you know, she divulged to me and a couple of my other siblings at the time. She was she would have left my father. She saw his violence. She saw how hard life was, and she wanted something else for her. Um, and but she's a mother, so she had nine children. She wasn't about to be selfish like that. And we we kept telling her, do it. You need to be. Ha- you deserve <laughs> happiness. So we had a conversation about happiness, and about I said one day you can come live with me, and we'll uh, you can you can stay with me, and then after that you can live with one of the other siblings, and you know you don't have to you don't have to worry about it. you know you'll be taken care of. And she said, "Okay, well, um, as soon as uh, I, I'm there in the motel with him, and then I go visit my mom, my, my grandmother Hortense, my man, she, I go visit her. Um, and so she had that, those needs to stay in touch with her mother. She knew that if she she uh, left, um, she would still have to have those regular trips to my grandmother's house. So, um, but you could, I could tell that she wanted it. But she talked to me about my life, and it's when she asked me." We never had a coming out because, you know, if you're a little boy and your father already knows you're going to be a gay man. Um, he was already, you yeah. know, the violence there did not let me have what I like to call my little gay quinceanera. <laughs> I did not get to come out at 15 and have a celebration about it. Not that uh, a lot of gay people do. A lot of people, it's fraught. It's not yeah. an easy thing. So when a person comes out, it takes a lot out of a lot of people. So I never had that moment. It was kind of uh, uh, understood already. But, um, but, we sh- but we talked about it. And I remember her. Buying a book about homosexuality, and the book ah. had that term in its title, and it was a very academic little, almost uh, clinical book. And I thought, well, she's good for her. Um, and I, it was titillated by the book. I looked through it, and I said, like, oh, it's very kind of scholarly. I, did, I wasn't, I wasn't that clinical, deep. probably, yeah, yeah. yeah. But she bought this little book, and it told me that she, she was genuinely, like, she was a, all of us. She was genuinely interested in me. And It turns out I have a bro- another brother who's gay as well. So there are two of us oh, who wow. are gay in, the, in the nine. Um, and so she um, was educating herself on that. Um, and then so, we, so she never said, I never had to say, you know, um, I'm gay mom. She just kind of that night at the peacocks. We were talking about. Um, we were joking, and, and we each had a Tom Collins and some cigarettes. And neither one of us really smoked.
1: I loved how you told that story—the Tom it's, Collins and cigarettes. Yeah, yeah. With your mother.
0: Yeah. So we was we, we were puffing and coughing, and we you know it's not really. it's just it ran out, <laughs> ran out in the lounge, ran out a dance hall. It wasn't it wasn't booming with people yet. It, we went early, and of course, there's nobody there, but but a bartender and a and a waitress. So um, we drank for and talked and smoked for about. Two hours, and we had this great conversation that meandered. But one of the parts that you alluded to is that uh, she talked to me about happiness. About I, I want to know about you, and you, and and you know, how's your how, how are you doing emotionally? Are you are you uh, romantically? You know, she wanted to know. She wanted to pry without being too prying, and mm-hmm. uh, and so, and I said, well, let me ask you advice. What do you? How do you? How, how do you? How did you pick up dad? And she told me all about how. Uh, or how did you that she picked him up but how did you meet dad uh how'd that happen and she told me all about that which became fodder for one of the chapters so um uh, so she told me about the, her history with that and that led to how did i how am i doing in that realm how am i going to meet somebody and she said i said mom so how what do you think i should do she goes well when you go out i told her where we'd go out and dance clubs and this and that yeah you know. oh you did yeah, yeah. so she'd say um uh, well, when you go out, dress like the man you want to go home with. And I was like, mm. wow, isn't that good? You know, like, that's you know,
1: great advice. Yeah. Uh, that's...
0: A, a lot of opposites attract. So a tattooed, pierced up guy might fall for a banker. I know that happens, but she's <laughs> the good advice is if you want to go home with somebody who's going to have some future with some potential, try to find somebody who you can tell is going to be similar to you. And that's, immediately apparent in the way they dress that's 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 what she meant behind that dress like the man you want to go home with which was so well put i was like damn, I'm going to do that, and I did, <laughs> so, and I've always used that, uh, and she also told me, she, I, I remember um, she, she was good, she, was, she had great lines as a mother, as many mothers do, she said um, once when I was much younger, I was very vain, and it was January, and Louisiana does get cold, um, and um, on, on occasion, so I was running out, and I had, a, I had at the time, thick red um, hair, auburn hair, and I was very conscious about keeping my hair in place, and so I didn't want to put a hat on. She goes, um, you know, she just put a hat on. I was like, um, I'm just going to to so and so, you know, whatever. And she says, "There's no hat ugly as vanity."
1: Love that. Love yeah, that. Yeah.
0: So thank you, mom. Oh. So, so. Morris,
1: you have jewels. You have jewels like that sprinkled through the book. These these scenes are just amazing. Um, from from your you know husband, you, yeah. your mother and my mare. Well, Morris, I'm looking at the time, and I think I've taken up enough of your time today, but I just want to thank you. It's been wonderful to talk to you. It's just such a wonderful
0: book. Thank you. Thank you. I really appreciate it. I am I, um, I, so glad that, that, that the podcast is on, and that's a thing. I hope lots of people are reached and come and come into the conversation about uh, what happens to uh, queer people in the South. It's not something that there's a lot of content out there now that's emerging, but a, a concerted conversation about that, I think, is going to be very much welcome and needed. So I'm so thrilled to be part of it.
1: Me too. But stay, So stay tuned, everyone, for um, Voices of the Queer South, future podcasts. Mm-hmm.